Hebrews chapter 13, that is where we come to today, and we come to the final chapter of this great letter to the Hebrews. And we're going to finish up uh, the epistle today. We're going to skip a couple of verses, though, because we're going to come back to those over the next few weeks, and we're going to uh, concentrate on those verses. But I want to take us all the way out uh, to the end of the 13th chapter today and um, just kind of finish up at least. We'll, ha- we'll have at least two finishings of Hebrews, and this today is going to be the first one. And so backing up just to get the context, in verse 28 of chapter 12, he says this, the writer, he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so this 28th verse of the 12th chapter is the lead into the final instructions of the epistle. And the various things mentioned in verses 1 through 19 are really some of what it looks like to serve God, because that's the kind of the final word that he's given us. This is, this is the mandate uh, for us as God's people. Uh, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we are to have our, our focus on that kingdom, that future kingdom that's coming. And in the present time, we are to be serving God in an acceptable way. And so here in uh, chapter 13, he gives us 12 different things that are uh, things that we are, are to be doing. Uh, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not like there aren't uh, other things that could be included. But here he gives us <coughs> 12 things that we are uh, to do as we serve God and await the coming of that unshakable kingdom. And right at the top of his list, he says, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love, that's the, that's the top priority for the Lord um, in regard to his people, that we would love each other, that we would be a people who uh, dwell in, a, in an atmosphere of love. And, and that's to be the... The, the, the characteristic, really, uh, of the church. You know, Jesus said, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And we, in as much as we, we do love one another, then we're, that there's, uh, uh, that's speaking loudly to the world. If we're not loving each other, if the world's looking on and seeing that, you know, Christians are all you know, bitter against one another and they're all divided up and they're fighting each other over, you know, this, that, and the other thing, uh, that's going to work against our testimony. And so when he says, let brotherly love continue, uh, he's, he's indicating that we've got to really put forth an effort here. We've got to work hard at this. You know, isn't it true? I know it's true in my life. I have to fight it. Uh, sometimes we can be so... Um, just sort of petty about things, you know. We, we can be so critical 
of one another. We can be so often so critical of other Christians. And, you know, somebody maybe doesn't see things exactly the way we do, and so we find fault with them. Or somebody maybe has a different, slightly different approach to ministry than we do. So we think, well, you know, there, there's just something a little bit wrong with that. And we, many times, uh, people don't have any problem expressing their opinion about uh, how they, they don't like the way this church does this or, or this group of Christians does that. And you know, all that really does, it just serves to undermine our witness. We are, as, as Paul said in, in writing to the Ephesians, we studied this a while back when we were going through Ephesians, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That means we gotta work at it because our natural tendency is to oftentimes be critical and to uh, you know, cause uh, strife and contention. And, and we just have to get beyond that. We have to learn not to do that because it's this atmosphere of love that Jesus wants to see cultivated in his church that's gonna be a, a welcoming thing to others on the outside. You know, in the world today, you don't find a whole lot of love. It's just, you know, it's not a real loving place out there. And there's got to be some place, there's got to be some people where there's an atmosphere of love and where you sense that, that real spirit of love, and that's to be the church. We are to be that people. So we cultivate it among ourselves. And, you know, isn't it interesting when you think of the, the church? The church is, you know, it's a body of Christ. It's made up of all kinds of different people from all different backgrounds and all different cultures and all different uh, ethnic backgrounds. And, and, you know, God's intentionally done this. He's put us all together. And in many cases, we don't have a whole lot in common. But we do have one thing in common, and it's the most important thing, and that's that God is our Father, and we are the followers of Christ. And it's that central thing that's to bring us together and all the things that would naturally divide us are just to kind of, you know, fall off of us uh, as a result of the greater common denominator, which is our relationship with Jesus and our love for Jesus. I think of uh, so many people who have become lifelong friends of mine, friends that I, I just... I absolutely love them. They love me. We, you know, we just have that deep bond of love. And I sometimes think, I look at them and think, you know, had I never become a Christian, I would have never had any association with this person. I would have never probably met them. And even if I had met them, I wouldn't have been drawn to have any kind of a relationship with them because, you know, we just come from such different places. But the Lord does away with all of that stuff. And he brings us together. And those things are no longer important. What the, what the real important thing is, is who Jesus is and our love for him. And he, and he brings us together. It's a beautiful thing. But the enemy always wants to uh, interfere with that. He's always trying to rip that apart. And so we've got to let brotherly love continue. We've got to be active in uh, our efforts to make sure we are loving each other. And as we love each other, then of course, as, as a body collectively, as the church itself, we can project that, that attitude of love out into the world that people are going to see and people are going to uh, 
respond to. They're gonna be drawn to that. So it starts right there with letting brotherly love continue. Secondly, he says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, the word entertain here is better uh, translated uh, hospitable, be hospitable toward or show, show hospitality to And he says, do not forget to entertain or to show hospitality to strangers. This is another thing with the church. We are to be hospitable. We're to be welcoming. We're to be those who are embracing of others. I I was listening to a guy share his testimony, and he was talking about how he was invited to a church, never been to church in his entire life, had no, no really no concept of church because he grew up in a family where there was just no emphasis whatsoever on anything religious. So he'd never gone to church. And as a uh, young man, he was invited by a friend to go to church, so he went. And he tells of his experience, you know, here he is, he's um, it's kind of an outsider because he doesn't know anybody except the person who brought him. He comes into an atmosphere where they're, you know, much like we would do, they're worshiping, there's music, they're maybe uh, expressing worship, they're lifting their hands and things like that. And of course, he thinks this is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced in my life. And he talks about how awkward he felt because he didn't know anybody. He felt like he was just, you know, really sort of standing out there and everybody just kind of knew that he shouldn't have been there. Felt very uncomfortable, he said. But at the end of the, of the service, he said someone came to him and introduced themselves, said they were very kind and welcomed him to the church and then said, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And he didn't know what else to say, so he said, okay. <laughs> and they prayed for him. But he said when they prayed for him, He said he had a feeling that he'd never had before. And he said he knew now what it was. It was the love of God just flooded over his life. But his point was when that person showed hospitality, when that person came up and and welcomed him and made him feel like he was wanted, and that just, that turned everything around for him, and then especially the prayer. And that's the way we are supposed to be. Now, in these days, Christians would travel from city to city, and oftentimes they would come into a a place where they didn't know anybody. But the way the early church looked at things is they should welcome those strangers that came from different places, and they should show the hospitality first to their own, to to their people. So as Christians would come in, they would do this. But then, of course, oftentimes it would extend beyond uh, the believers as well. But he says an interesting thing here. He says, don't forget to be hospitable to strangers because some have unwittingly entertained or shown hospitality to angels. Now, he's no doubt reflecting back on the story from Genesis 18, where Abraham is there sitting in his tent and three men pass by and he invites them to come in and to be refreshed and to have a meal. And two of those men happen to be angels and one of them happened to be the Lord himself. Now, Abraham didn't know that. They were just strangers passing by. But in the course of the meal, he discovered that these were actually angels that had come uh, under the, the shelter of his tent. 
And so I, I believe certainly the author's making an allusion back to that, but he's telling us that that kind of thing is possible. You know, it's possible that there might be a person who is actually an angel in disguise, disguised as a human being, that as we would reach out to them and, and show them hospitality, we would actually be ministering uh, to an angel. Uh, I, I read an article yesterday in uh, USA Today about a, a family in Scottsdale, Arizona, who went out to, uh, they went out to dinner with the family to celebrate the, the birthday of the mother. And the mother-in-law uh, came along and she was elderly. And during the course of the meal, she had some sort of an episode where she stopped breathing and they thought, you know, she was going to die on the spot. And as they were trying to administer to, uh, you know, some sort of assistance to her, suddenly this woman showed up and said, I'm a nurse here, let me help. And she kind of took over everything, gave her mouth to mouth resuscitation, got her breathing again. And the paramedics came. And then as the family went to find the woman to think her, she had vanished. They're, they couldn't, nobody had seen her leave. Uh, they went to the management of the restaurant. They said, well, you know, we think we saw her, but we don't know who she was. And she didn't eat here and she left. And you know, in the article, uh, the writer actually referred to her as the angel nurse. And I wonder if uh, maybe they had some sort of background where they might've known this passage. So you never know. I mean, maybe she's just a, a lady who did happen to randomly show up and they'll find out later who she was. But at this point, they don't know who she was. She was just there at the moment, right at that moment. And uh, they say that basically she saved the life of their loved one. So you never know, these things might happen years and years ago when Cheryl and I were dating. Um, I was working down in Huntington Beach at a surf shop. And as I was getting off work one evening and I went out, there was a lady on the corner of Pacific Coast Highway and Main Street, and she had to be in her 80s. Now, that's an unusual thing in and of itself right there. You usually don't see, you know, ladies in their 80s hanging around at PCH and Main Street. So I, I thought this was a little bit different. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, <coughs> I found out as I, as I began to talk to her that she was trying to get back to her residence and, you know, somehow she missed her ride or whatever. She wasn't able to get there. So I volunteered to take her. Now, Cheryl and I were dating at the time. And um, as I was driving her back to her place of residence, I began to tell her a little bit about my bride-to-be and the fact that we were going to get married and all of that. And she would say, think, oh, I bet she is just so beautiful. Oh, I bet she's just going to be the most wonderful. Oh, she is. She's going to be the most wonderful wife. I just, well, this is, yeah, I, I think so too. You know, this is great. And, and then I, you know, I was sharing the Lord with her a little bit. And I was talking to her about the Bible and about Jesus and what, it, you know, what the scriptures say and all that. So I get her back to, or I get her to the place where she asked me to take her. And then I said to her, I said, you know, I, I would just love for you to come to our wedding. And she said, well, I would love to come. And so I said, well, I'd, I'd like to send you an invitation. I took down, down the address of the place. She gave me her name. And then she said this to me. She looked at me. She said, young man, this is the greatest day of my life because you told me about Jesus. 
And I was like, wow, this is great. You know, this is amazing. So I went back and I told Cheryl the whole story and she thought it was great too. And I said, okay, we're going to send, uh, we're going to send her this invitation. And, and we sent out the invitation and it came back and it said, no such person at this place. So I called the, the place and I said, well, I, I know the person lives there because I dropped them off there. And they said to me, they said, I'm sorry, sir, uh, we don't have anybody by this name here. And we've never had anybody by this name here. So I concluded she was an angel. <laughs> I still don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was one of those kinds of things where I, I walked away thinking, wow, that, because it was just so, there, there were so many things about it, you know, that were just really extraordinary. So... You never know what is going to happen, so we have to be sensitive to those things. We have to be sensitive to, to those that he's referring to here, the strangers. Now, verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. So remembering the prisoners, those who were in prison for their faith, those who were mistreated, those who were suffering persecution, that's who he's talking about here. And when he says, remember them, he's basically reminding us to pray for those who were in that plight. But remembering them, he says, as if you were chained with them. So when we think of those who are suffering for their faith, we need to put ourselves, he's talking about empathy here. We need to put ourselves in their place so we can, we can kind of feel, uh, at least in our imagination, we can kind of feel what they're going through. You know, sometimes it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that you guys do this too, so I'm not the worst person in the room, but, you know, sometimes I have to confess that when I'm praying for people, I'm not praying with the passion or the intensity or the, or the focus that I should. You know, sometimes I hear about something and, you know, somebody says, oh, would you pray for this? And you're going to, okay, yeah, Lord, I just pray for that. And then I think, man, if, I hope nobody prays for me like this because if they do, God, it's pathetic. It, you know, it's, it's kind of a heartless prayer. You ever pray a heartless prayer? I confess I have done that. Um, but this is not that. <laughs> He's saying, don't, don't pray like that. He's saying, no, enter in, engage in, uh, put yourself in the place where the, person is, uh, where the person is at. So when we think of those who are in prison, when we think of those who are suffering for their faith, when we think of those who are persecuted, we need to, in our mind, put ourselves in their shoes and we need to think, you know, how would I want somebody to pray for me if I were in this place? So we're, play, we're praying intentionally, we're praying passionately. We're praying with... Uh, confidence and faith. That's what it means to remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated as though chained with them, remembering that we ourselves are in the body. They're part of the body. We're all together. You know, if you, if you, had, if you had a family member, say, a loved one, that was in a situation like this, of course, you would be much more uh, focused. It's all oh, my son or my daughter or my, you know, whoever it might be. Well, remember, we're all part of the body. We're all part of the family. Uh, those, those who are suffering in that, in that way, they are literally our family members. 
because we're all the children of God. So remember them in prayer. And then in verse four, he says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this verse, you wonder like, okay, well, what does this have to do with the context of everything he's saying? And, and I don't think that the biblical writers ever just randomly threw stuff in. I, I always look to find the connection. Okay, why, why, why does he say this here? And this is what I have concluded. Why he brings up marriage here is because, remember, he's talking to people who are suffering. He's talking to people who are wavering in their faith because of the difficulties. He's talking to people who are thinking about stepping away, stepping back from Jesus because it's uncomfortable following him closely, and they're, they're looking to, to get out of that uncomfortable situation. And you know what happens sometimes when we go through difficulties? Sometimes, instead of turning to the Lord or drawing near to him, we draw away from him, and then we go to other things to find consolation. We go to other things to receive comfort. And in some cases, what people do is they go into adultery. They go into adultery because they, they feel like, well, this, I'm, I'm gonna get some comfort here from this relationship. I'm not getting it in the circumstances that I find myself in right now. You know, somebody recently was telling me about a person who's, uh, they're, they're going through a crisis in their family because of the health of, of one of their children. And, um, you know, the mother, of course, is all concerned about the health of the child. And the dad is all concerned about how now this new problem that the child has developed is going to interfere with his sex life with his wife. You think, What? But that's how selfish we can become at times. That's how self-centered we can become. And sometimes a crisis sets us up for temptation because we're looking for uh, relief, we're looking for comfort, and we can be tempted to go in the wrong direction. So he just gives a firm reminder that marriage is honorable and the bed is to be kept undefiled. And then a firm reminder, God's going to judge the fornicator and the adulterer. And so he's, it's, it's really, you know, uh, a warning in a sense not to, not to look for uh, comfort or, or, or security somewhere else, but it's also a reminder to be faithful in the marital relationship. And then in verse five, he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Once again, in the context, they had suffered the loss of possessions. They had suffered the loss of position. They had taken a, a financial hit because of their commitment to Christ, they were being shunned. You know, perhaps some of them were, uh, you know, maybe they were shop owners. And the word got around, hey, don't, don't be buying your goods from these followers of Jesus. We don't want to give any support to them. And so they began to uh, suffer financially because of their commitment to Christ. And then again, the temptation to go after money would come. And the author says, 
let your life be without covetousness and be content with what you have. And remember this, God has said he'll never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is with you. He's going to take care of you. And then he reminds them that the Lord is our helper. You know, we live in a climate today that is becoming more like the climate that they lived in. It's not, we're not there yet, but at the rate things are going, uh, we could be there sooner than we think. You know, today it's not uncommon for people to be getting pressure from their employer, uh, pressure to uh, just kind of, you know, embrace the new perspective on sexuality and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, the, the pressure to say, you know, don't, we don't want you letting anybody know that you're a follower of Jesus here. And, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff is happening. And on many occasions, we're seeing that people who are boldly uh, taking a stand for following Jesus are suffering some consequences. Sometimes they're losing their jobs or sometimes they're being overlooked in a promotion that would be rightfully theirs. And when that happens, there's a temptation to think, well, you know, I've got to compromise because if I don't compromise, I'm going to lose my job. And if I lose my job, how am I going to survive? Well, here's how you're going to survive. The Lord is your helper. Don't fear what man can do to you. God will help us. God will take care of us. He always has anyway. Sometimes we just forget that. But he wants us to remember that that is the case. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And we can have confidence that if men turn us out, if they exclude us, if they uh, put in you know, policies that are gonna uh, you know, prevent us from being able to prosper and move forward, then we're just gonna have to trust the Lord. We, we should be trusting him anyway, but we're gonna have to, um, in a more obvious way, trust him when those kinds of things come along. But what a wonderful word there in verse six. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. That's our response to that, those kinds of threats. Well, okay, whatever you do, that's your business. But you know, the Lord is my helper. I'm trusting the Lord in the end. And the Lord is going to take care of us. Verse seven, remember those who rule over you or those who lead you, whose who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. So remember, once again, the idea to pray for, to call to mind those who lead you. And so this is uh, just a reminder to think about those who are in spiritual leadership over you, those who speak the word of God to you. Um, pray for them. Pray for us. I'm, I'm so thankful for the fact that so many of you pray for us. I really am. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I, you know, I travel a lot, as you know, and people will come up and say, you know, I've been praying for you. And I, I just am so blessed. I'm so thankful. My mom, I was talking to her yesterday and she was telling me she has a friend who I've never met before. She's in her 80s and she prays for me every single day. And I'm just astounded and uh, my mom's telling me, she says, and you know, she's, she really doesn't like you traveling. And uh, she's really concerned about you. And I said, well, okay, well, tell her I'm home and I'm not going anywhere. And so, uh, you know, her prayers are answered there. But I just thought that was funny. You know, she's, she prays for me every day and she has a strong opinion that I shouldn't be traveling as much. So, uh, but I'm just so thankful that she prays. And 
That's what it means, to remember those who lead you, who have spoken the word to you. And also, your responsibility is to pray for us. Our responsibility is to live uh, a faithful life so you can follow our example. Hopefully, we're doing that. Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is one of my favorite verses. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I can't tell you how many times this one little verse has just leapt off the page and spoken so powerfully to me. Now, again, what's the context? The context is this. God is faithful. That's, what, that's why he uh, brings up the, the um, eternality of Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The immutability of Jesus. Immutability means he never changes. And the, the encouragement is that we can trust the Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we've seen him do in the past, as they remember at chapter 11, that long history of all of those that God was faithful to, he's saying, you know, that same God who is faithful to them is gonna be faithful to you as well. He's the same today as he was yesterday, and he's never gonna change. He's gonna be the same forever. And that's how I've been many, many times greatly encouraged through this word. It's just a reminder that, you know, the Lord is faithful. He hasn't changed. His promises are faithful. His promises are true. And the promises that he gave centuries ago still apply to his people today. And when you read a passage of scripture and when that thing just resonates with you and it's a promise of God in your circumstances, listen, believe it, lay hold of it. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning after second service and I've known her for 35 plus years and her grandson, uh, I might've alluded to this story a while back, but her grandson um, had a, a, an accident through a dr drug overdose and he was basically in a state where they said, uh, first of all, they said he was gonna die. Secondly, they said if he lived, he would be a vegetable. And there was a conversation going on in the hospital about who was gonna pull the plug. And God spoke to her and said, fight for him, pray for him. He's not gonna die. All, everybody in the, in the, all the doctors, everybody dealing with him said, you know, sorry, this is a done deal. There's nothing that can be done. It's over, he's, he's gone. She told me today, next week he's getting on an airplane and he's coming out here for Christmas. God did, God did for her and others just exactly what he told her that he would do. And when everybody was saying, no, it's impossible, it's never gonna happen, it's over, face it, she said, no, I believe what Jesus told me. And she was right. So the Lord, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's faithful. We can depend on him. Verse nine, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by it. Is that verse a little weird? Let the heart be established with grace, not with foods. What does that mean? Well, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews. And what was a big part of uh, Judaism, it was the, what we call today the kosher laws. Remember, they thought, and there, there was a time obviously where God did give them dietary restrictions back under the Mosaic system. Um, 
but they were continuing to think that it was what they ate or didn't eat that would give them favor with God. And uh, the writer says, don't be preoccupied with those things. That is not the issue. The issue is the grace of God. Let the heart be established in God's grace. Now, most of us aren't Jewish. We don't have to struggle with that kosher issue. Uh, There are Jews, obviously, today who still abide by that. And sometimes even uh, Jewish people that come to faith in Jesus, they kind of still get, you know, torn between the Jewish traditions and culture. And they sometimes feel like, well, you know, I've got to still abide by the kosher diet and all of that. But this doesn't affect you spiritually one way or the other. But you don't even have to be Jewish. There are other groups that do similar things. The Seventh-day Adventists, of course, are uh, a great example. There are people who believe in Jesus, but they also uh, adhere strictly to the Mosaic dietary restrictions. They also emphasize the Sabbath day, Saturday, instead of Sunday. They say, well, you know, you're worshiping the devil if you're worshiping on Sunday. We worship on the Sabbath day. And they criticize everybody who doesn't worship on the Sabbath day. These are all distractions. These are all things that profit. They don't profit at all. Whether it's that or some other list of things that somebody comes up with and says, well, this is how to be really spiritual. This is how to really go here. Take this, uh, this is how to really grow. Take this list here, you know, just make sure you follow this. No, let the heart be established with grace. We got to grow in the grace of God. That's what we got to grow in. And the more we grow in the grace of God, the more we become the people that God wants us to be. And so going on, he says, we have an altar. And here he's talking about the difference. Remember, they're Jews, so they're thinking about going back to the Old Testament. He's contrasting the Old Covenant with the New. We have an altar as believers now, which those who serve the tabernacle, the priesthood that still existed, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Remember, again, they were, they were wanting to go back into that community. They were wanting to go back to the temple. They were wanting to go back and, and uh, be accepted once again and be freed from the reproach that they were suffering for the name of Christ. And the author says, no, don't do that. But rather, just as Jesus suffered outside the gate, let us go outside the gate to him. Listen, inevitably, we are going to be excluded from this world. For many, many years, centuries, you know, Christianity has been relatively accepted. In some cases, it's been tolerated. But as you can see in the climate today, the tolerance for those who believe in Jesus is decreasing, finding more and more intolerance. And there's more and more of this idea of, you know, let's, let's push them out. Let's just get rid of them. You know, we, we, no, we don't want their influence. We don't want them weighing in on anything. Of course, you know, we see that with, with politics and government and all that. You know, we see all of that happening. And our tendency is to resist that and say, well, that's wrong and you shouldn't do that. And, you know, it, a lot of it is wrong, obviously. But in the end, we're called to bear his reproach. 
In the end, we're called to just stand with Jesus and say, hey, you know what? If you kick us out, it's okay because Jesus went outside the city to die for us. We're gonna go outside the city too. And he reminds them, for here you have no continuing city. They didn't realize, as I mentioned earlier in a, in a previous message, they didn't realize that that city that they were putting all their stock in, that system that they were wanting to go back to because it seemed so secure to them, it was gonna be done really quickly. It was gonna be over. And so likewise, we might be driven out of the, of the world, in a sense, in our generation. You know, there, there might be an exclusion of Christians like we've never seen in this land. There might be. I don't know for sure, but there could be. But if there is, it's okay because here we have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. Our eyes are to be focused on heaven anyway and on the kingdom that God is going to establish. So it's really just a reminder that we're all going to suffer reproach for Christ. Paul said this in writing to the Philippians. He said, it is granted to you. Granted, listen to that word. It is granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer shame for his name. That's been granted to us. You know what that means? We have the privilege of suffering for Jesus. The apostles certainly thought that was the case. Remember in the early chapters of Acts where they were taken and they were abused, they were beaten, and it says they, then they were released. And as they left, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. That's the attitude that we need to adopt in our day and age because that's always been the case. Paul said to Timothy, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's inevitable. It will happen. There is a reproach that's going to come. But the writer is saying, receive it. Embrace it. Bear it. It's okay. Here we have no continuing city. We seek the one to come. There's, there's a new world coming. There's a new day coming. And that's our world. And so that's where our uh, affections are to be focused. And as for this world, we're not to worry about those things or to be disheartened when they happen. Verse 15, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased. I love this 15th verse because you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the fact that when we gather and we sing songs to the Lord, it's not just a meaningless ritual. It's not just something that we're doing to you know, pass the time till we get to something else. It's a time where we are offering sacrifices to God. That's what's happening as we lift up our praise to him, continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. As we praise the Lord, as we just tell him thank you, as we express our gratitude toward him and, and our praise and our worship as we do that uh, in song, or you know, you don't have to have a musical accompaniment, but just as you, as you do that, as you praise the Lord, that's a sacrifice of praise that goes up. 
That's why we have to be so careful about um, being hyper uh, judgmental or critical when it comes to music and the songs that are being sung. And, and I can be guilty of that just like anybody else because I have a certain preference for different, you know, certain style of music. And, you know, sometimes there might be a song and it's like, oh gosh, I don't really like this song. And, you know, I could imagine the Lord saying, well, you know, it wasn't written for you, so don't worry about it. <laughs> it was written for him. It's not being sung to you. It's being sung to him. You know, sometimes you hear people say, man, I love that church. You know, that church is so awesome. Man, the worship there is so great. What does that mean? The worship there is so great. Does that mean you really felt good while you were worshiping? Well, worship isn't really for us to feel good. That's not the purpose of it. You know, worship is great if your heart is directed toward God. You might be the worst singer in the world, but you know, if your heart's in it, that's great worship as far as God's concerned. That's a sacrifice to him. And that's how we offer sacrifices in this new covenant. We offer it by offering up the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but also <coughs> by doing good and by sharing. He says that those are sacrifices. So when we as Christians, when we do good, whatever it might be, this is a sacrifice to God. God takes note of it. You know, sometimes we do good and nobody recognizes it and you know, we get sort of upset. Well, and how come nobody thanked me for this? Don't worry about it. God, God sees it. He delights in it. It's a sacrifice to him. Doing good and sharing. Sharing, of course, means helping people. Um, and the idea here would be, you know, with uh, possessions or monetarily, uh, that's the idea of sharing. Those are sacrifices that God is well pleased with. And then finally, Verse 17, obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Here the writer, and all the way through the New Testament, they, they clearly envision uh, a, a ministry where there's leadership that has spiritual authority, and there are those who are submitted to that authority. Of course, there's always the balance and the warnings that you know people are not, the people who have authority are not to abuse the authority. But there is to be uh, a recognition of authority and a submission. And you know, when you become a Christian, that's what you sign up for. Before you're a Christian, you, you're kind of uh, autonomous. You know, you don't follow any rules. You don't recognize any authority, maybe. You don't care what other people say. You're going to just do what you're going to do, and, and you're not going to let anybody else uh, tell you what to do. Well, guess what? When you become a Christian, all of that changes. Nobody forces you to become a Christian, but when you do become a Christian by your own will, you're also putting yourself in a position to be submissive to those that God has uh, given authority to. So those are, those are things that are just important to remember. And now, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but especially I urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Go down to verse 22, and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words, know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all, amen. The final thing that he 
points to is prayer. And I'm gonna come back to that in just one second. But notice, now maybe you've picked up on this and maybe you haven't. Um, all the way through this book, you've never heard me refer to the name of the author because I don't believe that we know who the author is. Uh, some people are very confident that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Actually, some Bibles even say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, but there's no place here where uh, the author identifies himself. And um, I'm of the mind that perhaps it was somebody like Barnabas who was the author. Maybe it was Apollos who was the author. Both of them uh, would, would qualify for that. Paul would too, but it just doesn't, as I read through it, it just it doesn't ring Pauline like all, all of the rest of Paul's epistles. It doesn't really matter in the end. It's kind of just a debate among scholars, but it doesn't really matter. Of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of the epistle. But what I do want to point out is notice that the person who did write it, he says, you know, to pray for me uh, that I may be restored to you the sooner. It could be that the person is writing from, him, from a, a place of imprisonment or maybe just from a place of, you know, not being able to, to get to them uh, like he would like to. But clearly we see that Timothy was imprisoned. It's interesting. This is, we don't, we would not know that Timothy experienced imprisonment were it not for this statement right here. Now, Paul, uh, in his lifetime, he spoke to Timothy about those possibilities and he wrote as a prisoner. But as far as we can tell from Paul's epistles to Timothy, Timothy had not yet experienced imprisonment himself, but we know here that he eventually did. So, but the final word is prayer. Pray for us. And I want to say this in closing. This is the word for the church in the next year. Prayer. It's time to pray. And I, I want to encourage you, pray for us. And we pray for you. And, and we need to pray as God's people. Man, if there was ever a time, you know, when, when we needed to pray, it, the time is now. We need to pray. And I, I think of, you know, the powers that are at work. I think of uh, the demonic forces. You think of uh, what's happening with radical Islam. You know, is, you've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got what's happening with the radical uh, secular agenda. You know, the atheist and the, uh, these, you know, leftists in the sense that they are, uh, you know, God-hating kinds of people. And, and they, they, there seems to be this, this domination of these two ideologies uh, in many places in the world, uh, these ideologies battling one another. And I think, you know, there's another factor that people aren't considering, and that's the Spirit of God. And we're gonna see the Spirit of God break into that, that thing there as we pray. And so I wanna encourage you to take this final word to heart and think about 2016 as being the year of prayer and come on out for the week of prayer. Get started. Let, let's do it. Let's pray. Let's see God work in ways that maybe we've only dreamed he would do, but let's see him uh, move in this year to come because we're gonna commit ourselves to prayer. That's the word, the final word that he leaves us with. And so Lord, help us to take all of these things to heart and help us, Lord, to do these things that we might please you, that the testimony of Christ might go forth powerfully in the world. 
Lord, help us to pray. Help us, Lord, as your people to become men and women of prayer. Help us collectively as the body to pray that we might see you work in great and awesome ways in the days ahead. So we give you all of these things and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.